Well, good morning, everyone. We meet once again via computer screen and uh, televisions and whatever else you might have uh, this on. So good morning to you. Happy Lord's Day. And it's a beautiful day. I think it's going to be 60 degrees and uh, sunny. So that's a very welcome, especially after uh, a few days this week. But it's good to be with everyone. I'm glad you could join in. Let me begin with a word of prayer, and then we will uh, get started. Let me make an announcement, too. Is we're, uh, we are kind of working on how to get some different screens up and, and even put uh, quotes and the outline up there. But in the meantime, I did send out an email if you haven't received it already. And in the email, there is an outline. There is uh, some of the quotes uh, that I'll give a couple uh, of quotes. The first one is a little bit longer. So it's easier to obviously read along than just uh, hear it. So until we get some of these uh, new things worked out, I thought that might be a, a helpful way. So hopefully uh, you receive that and you'll be able to uh, uh, follow along. So with that being said, let me begin by opening us up in a word of prayer. And uh, then we'll look at uh, this morning together, Psalm 84. That's where we'll find ourselves this morning is in Psalm 84. So uh, why don't you pray with me? Father, thank you for this time uh, that we can gather in our homes, obviously not physically present, but at least uh, together around your word. And we do ask, Lord, that you would very quickly uh, move things forward uh, that we could again gather together as your people. And while, Lord, that is our greatest heart's desire, we know there are, there are so many other parts to this, uh, just in our world of this separation with people who are going through difficult times because of jobs and their businesses, even some within our own congregation. Lord, we do pray for their sake as well, that you would show mercy and allow uh, these things to start functioning again and people to start working again. But, but again, our greatest desire in the context of uh, gathering as your people is to be with one another, to, to be in one another's presence. And so we ask you to encourage our hearts uh, until then, sustain them with the fellowship we have with you. But Lord, please quickly, quickly change this circumstance. And we do continue to pray that you give our leaders wisdom as they make those decisions that you would be uh, enabling those who are in the medical profession and others who are working towards a solution to uh, do their best and to um, to exercise the skill that you gave them uh, to the best of their ability. And Lord, that we would, by your general and your common grace and your mercy, find uh, a solution soon. But now, Lord, as we come together and we look at your word together, um, particularly in Psalm 84 and the issue of worship, our Father, we ask you to be our teacher. Holy Spirit, we ask you to open our eyes and illumine to us the nature of true worship that we might be encouraged. Our Lord Jesus Christ, we thank you that you are the center of that worship. And in you and in your person and in your work as the incarnate son, as the promised Messiah, as our redeemer and our returning king, uh, that you would... Uh, help us to see uh, the majesty of your person and of your work, even as it's uh, anticipated here in the Old Testament in Psalm 84, but we have so much more of a glorious uh, understanding of the full plan of redemption. And we do share, though, also with this psalmist an anticipation of something greater. And it is to that end that we ask you to teach us, to encourage our hearts. And we pray these things in your name, Jesus. Amen. All right. So as I mentioned, we're going to be looking at Psalm 84 uh, this morning. Psalm 84, as we're continuing to work through these psalms, we will move on soon. Eventually, maybe we'll come back and look at some more psalms down the road. But uh, not sure if we're uh, going to move on next week. or. But we are taking some of the Psalms and some of those that are, at least uh, in my mind, I hopefully yours too, some of the more significant Psalms that we return to uh, over and over again that seem to have a particular 
uh, impact on our on our hearts. And one of those, uh, for me at least anyway, maybe for many of you, is Psalm 84. Psalm 84. And Psalm 84 is an expression of worship. It's an expression of worship from the heart of an old covenant saint, of those who worshiped God under the conditions of the old covenant. And while there are distinctions there, there are as well commonalities because the worship that's been offered to God through all ages is from a heart that has seen his glory and responded to him in truth. And worship is uh, something that is... I think many of us might agree is sometimes uh, misunderstood. Uh, this isn't new to our generation, although we we certainly can uh, just deal with what we see in, in the church and how worship is often expressed. And I think one thing that is common to us, and again, this, this isn't new to us, but it is common in our generation, is that worship is equated primarily with music and emotions. Uh, we see that even uh, in the way that we name things that are part of our worship service. We have worship teams, which usually refers to what? The music team the, or the, the music band or whatever someone might call them. Or we refer to now we're going to have a time of worship. And that generally in, in our generation means that we're going to have a time of singing. We're going to have a time of music. And in connection with this, one truly feels that they have worshipped by the measure of their emotional experience, how emotionally connected they felt in that moment, generally, of the music time. Uh, that is equated, or they, in their mind, will say, that's then that I worship God. And the, the value of my worship experience was how moved I was able to be uh, in those times. Uh, that's just a very common common way of thinking in the church today. There is, even in a broader tradition, how worship is thought of uh, or limited to, in, in the minds of many, to a particular tradition or a particular liturgy or a worship service. Uh, so, for example, we, we call that a worship service when we come together, usually on Sunday with all of the elements uh, that express our faith in God and our love for him and our trust in him and, and so forth. And there is in we were what is sometimes called high church is it's a more formalized liturgy, in other words, where they have a more structured approach to their service. And that is, uh, again, their worship is really sometimes confined in people's thinking to that particular liturgy, the, that sort of set of traditions and principles uh, that get enacted each week as God's people come together. And all of these can be expressions and, and are expressions uh, often of genuine worship. Uh, they are a way that we as the gathered people of God uh, do express our faith in him and our gratitude to him. But they aren't what worship is. They are possible expressions of worship, but all of those can be done with a wrong heart. In fact, all of them can be done uh, with an unbelieving heart, with a heart that is still dead in sin and has not been yet awakened to see the glory of Christ. So then what is worship? What is worship? Well, one simple way to think of it, a, a way that I think of it in its most concise or simple form is to say this, that, that worship is a whole person response of an awakened heart to the glory of God in Christ. It's a whole person response of the awakened heart to the glory of God in Christ. That being said, one of my most, one of my favorite definitions is a little bit longer. Uh, it's pretty detailed. It pretty much captures everything. Uh, I sent this in the email for those who may have gotten it. Uh, if not, I'm sorry, you'll just have to uh, listen as I read along or as I read. But if you did uh, receive that email, then you can read along with me. Uh, this is one of my favorite uh, definitions. Worship springs from a spirit-illumined understanding of the greatness and beauty of God through the revelation of his glorious perfections and works, especially manifest in the life of ministry and accomplishments of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, 
giving rise by the Spirit to deep and abiding inward affections of reverence, love, adoration, gratitude, and praise for God and Christ above all else, and yielding outward behavior marked by an ultimate, joyous, and Spirit-empowered allegiance, devotion, submission, and obedience to the Lord Christ, seeking in everything to trust God's promises in Christ, turn from sin's deceptive temptations, and carry out God's will in attitudes and actions of love and righteousness toward God and man, and live all of life by the power of the Spirit to the glory of God through Christ alone. Again, that's an extended definition. Uh, I wouldn't ask you to repeat that. Uh, but it does capture the fullness of the idea of what I would simplify by saying in worship is a whole person response of the awakened heart to the glory of God in Christ. And that whole person response is of our mind, is of our affections, and of our will in every way to God as he's revealed in Christ. So this, but this longer expression and, and this, this inward response to God, which is at the, the heart of worship, uh, is, is shown in those outward things that we mentioned in traditions and our liturgy and the way that we go about it. But at its heart, what is being emphasized, what I want to emphasize is that it begins with an inward faith in God, an inward sense of his glory in Christ. Well, although the psalmist did not, did not yet know of the full glory of the revelation of Christ, he mirrors for us and models for us and points us to this true heart of worship. Although it was yet limited in the fullness of what God would do, it is, it is a response of the heart, the fullness of this psalmist being to his experience of the sweetness and the savior of the uh, savor of the glory of God and his redemption and his nearness and his presence with his people. And so what I want to see here in this morning, what we'll look at together in Psalm 84 is three expressions of true worship to both encourage and to measure our own. So three expressions of true worship to encourage and measure our own. Uh, let's begin, however, by reading Psalm 84. Psalm 84. How lovely are your dwelling places, O Lord of hosts. My soul longed and even yearned for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh sing for joy to the living God. The bird also has found a house and swallow a nest for herself where she may lay her young. Even your altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God. How blessed are those who dwell in your house. They are ever praising you. And how blessed is the one whose strength is in you, in whose heart are the highways to Zion. Passing through the valleys of Baca, they make it a spring, and the early rain also covers it with blessing. They go from strength to strength. Every one of them appears before God in Zion. O Lord, God of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob. Behold our shield, O God, and look upon the face of your anointed. For a day in your courts, courts is better than a thousand outside. I would rather stand at the threshold of the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. For the Lord God is a sun and a shield. The Lord gives grace and glory, and no good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, how blessed is the man who trusts in you. And that, beloved, is an expression of worship. And the first expression that he gives in verses one through four is that he longs for the presence of God. He longs for the presence of God. And this is a, a striking expression of the regenerate person's heart that has as a natural outflow of being awakened to God, a desire and a longing for his presence, to be near him, to be near him. That was no less the heart of the Old Testament saint than it is of the New Testament saint, as is expressed here in his words. 
Notice the language that he uses, my soul longed, my soul longed for it, my heart and my flesh sing for the living God. This is someone who is viscerally and emotionally and deeply and sincerely and passionately longing to be near to God, to be near to God. But specifically, as he expresses this longing to be near to God, he is centering this longing and the presence of God on the temple, on the temple, which was the center of Israelite worship. It was the place that God, by his own design, excuse me, <coughs> had placed his name and his presence. It was to be the focal point of the worship of his people. Therefore, to better understand uh, this psalm and what he's expressing here, and, and really to better understand the privilege of our own position, it's, it's helpful to have a broad reminder of the way that the temple and the presence of God and the temple, for first the tabernacle and then the temple, functioned in the heart and in the religious and spiritual life of the Old Testament saint. So I'm going to give a, a broad broad understanding of that. And so for that reason, we are going to spend most of our time on this first point and go a bit more quickly through the second one, the last two. But, but it is helpful here to get an idea of the way that this worked out in the longing of the Old Testament saint. And indeed, it was the longing of the believing heart of the Old Testament believer to be in the presence of God in the temple and in the tabernacle. David expressed this beautifully in Psalm 27.4. Now, for him, it would have been the tabernacle. For our psalmist, it is the temple, but we'll get into that. But David says this in Psalm 27.4. Just listen as I read. He says, One thing I have asked from the Lord that I shall seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to behold the beauty of the Lord. That is, in fact, the same heart that we see in our psalmist here. So what is then this connection of the presence of God to the tabernacle and to the temple of God? Well, in the big scope of God unfolding his plan of redemption or his work, the unfolding of his fulfillment of the promise of redemption, given all the way back in Genesis 3.15, God made a covenant with Abraham. And in fulfillment of this promise to God's covenant with Abraham, he formed the nation of Israel. And after forming the nation of Israel, we know he redeemed them out of their slavery and their bondage in the land of Egypt. He led them through the Red Sea, through the wilderness to the mountain of Sinai. And it's at Sinai that he entered into a covenant with them through Moses. In other words, Moses was the mediator of that covenant. And in giving them that covenant, he established the framework of how they as his people would worship him, how they were to approach him, how they were to come nearer to him. And at the center of the Israelite camps, the center of this structure of worship was at first the tabernacle complex. Now, this tabernacle complex consisted of a courtyard, and then the tabernacle, which was uh, the tent itself, and it was set off by uh, a gate. The courtyard was by a gate, and then the camps were then camped around this tabernacle uh, structure. Within the courtyard, once you entered into the first gate, the entrance into this courtyard of the tabernacle, you would have been met with a large bronze altar, and it was on this altar that the the burnt offering sacrifices were offered up by the priest. And if you were to travel a little bit past the bronze offer, altar, you would have come to a bronze laver or laver is a place of water. And that is where the priest would have ceremonially cleansed themselves and cleansed their hands before they entered into the tabernacle structure itself. And so then what did one find in the tabernacle after moving into the tabernacle, which could only be entered, by the way, by the priest, 
there were would have found two rooms, two different compartments. The first room was called the holy place, and then separated by a curtain, you went a little further into the center of the of the entire tabernacle structure, which is called the most holy place. The most holy place. Within the holy place, there would have been found three objects. There was the table of the bread of presence, which was, of course, maintained routinely by the priests who could enter in there. There was the golden lampstand, which was constantly kept burning with oil provided by the people and kept as well by the priest. And then in front of the curtain that separated the holy place from the most holy place, there was an altar of incense that, again, was maintained and kept by the priest. Once you moved past the most holy place into the curtain, there were or the holy place, you entered into the most holy place. And here only the high priest could enter and that only once a year on the day of atonement. And what would you find in the most holy place? You would find the ark of the covenant and the blood of the atonement during the day of atonement was then offered on the lid of this ark. It was a lid of, well, we'll just say atonement. And that was then the way that Israel was to express their worship to God as designed by God himself. Now, as I mentioned, the psalmist here is referring to the temple later built by Solomon, but it consisted of the same core elements. It was much larger and it had some more uh, adornments, but it was essentially that same structure. When you went into Solomon's temple, you had the courtyard, you had the altar, you had the, what was called the sea, and then you had the temple proper, which was again, the holy place and the most holy place, but also a, a little porch uh, in front of it. And so then that was the basic structure of the way of the worship uh, or the manifestation of God's presence among his people. But the essential point in all of this is that the temple represented the center of Israelite worship. And it was where God himself had designed that his presence would be uniquely manifested. And this was what set Israel off, the glory of Israel off really from every other religion every other God is that, or expressions of gods of the pagan nations. And it is that God, the true God dwelled among his people. Let me give you just a couple of examples of this. Don't, again, you don't have to turn there, just follow along. But in Exodus chapter 25, verse eight, God in giving these instructions again through Moses says, let them construct a sanctuary for me. Why? Why? That I may dwell among them, that I may dwell among them. In verse 29 of Exodus, or excuse me, chapter 29 of Exodus, verse 44, he says this. Well, actually look at verse 43. He says, I will meet there with the sons of Israel and it shall be consecrated by my glory. And he says, I will consecrate the tent of meeting and the altar. I will also consecrate Aaron and his sons to ministers, priests to me. And I will dwell among the sons of Israel and I will be their God. And they shall know that I am the Lord, their God, who brought them out of the land of Egypt, that I may dwell among them. I am the Lord, their God. It was the place that God met with his people. Let me give you just one more passage. Deuteronomy 4.7. It says this, for what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God whenever we call on him? And what was the picture of that God who was so near to them that they could call on him and actually come to him? It was his presence in the temple. And this was a major movement forward in this big grand scale of God working out his redemption, which has at its heart a reestablishment of his presence among his image bearers, his creatures. It was the presence of God that man was separated from by sin uh, in the garden. 
And it was the presence of God that was being reestablished through those who trusted him leading up to this point. You can remember Jacob who laid his head and saw the ladder going up and down. Moses, Abraham who built altars as God appeared to him. And then now you have them in this magnificent display of God's fulfilling this in an even greater way as promised his presence here in the tabernacle in the temple. This is a glorious, glorious picture of God's true desire for his redeemed people. Now, how did he manifest this presence? It was manifest this idea of God's presence with his people when they left Egypt through a cloud and fire. You remember he led them by a cloud by day and he led them by fire at night as he was taking them through the wilderness. It was then manifest in a dramatic way as well when he brought them to Sinai. And there was, we won't turn there, but in Exodus 19 and 20, you can read of the, the thunder and the smoke and the loud sound of the trumpet and the trembling and the fear that was put into the heart of the people at the base of the mountain, which God did to teach them to fear sin. But his presence was manifest there in a, in a glorious, glorious way as he gave them his law. But then again, in a more enduring sense, he manifested his presence at the establishment of both the tabernacle and the temple to show that as long as they stood and as long as the ark was there, that that is where his unique focus and a unique manifestation of his presence would be. So in verse Exodus 40, Again, just go read with me. Then the cloud, when they when they had finished building what God had instructed them, he says, then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses, verse 35, was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. That was to say that this is God's house, as it were. This was the place of God's presence. In a similar way, after Solomon had completed the temple, which signified its permanent place, God having established Jerusalem as the permanent place of his abode and the, the tabernacle was as they were wandering around. The temple signified that they had come into the land that God had promised. And when Solomon had finished this, he says uh, this in 1 Kings 8, that it happened when the priests came from the holy place the cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priest could not stand to minister because of the cloud for the glory of the Lord filled the house. Again, it was a way for God to manifest his presence uniquely there. But now in saying that, they never confused, they didn't confuse that the fullness of God actually was there. And again, just to or to make mention of that, Solomon, or to, and to make that clear, said a little bit later during this dedication service in verse 27 of 1 Kings 8, but God, but will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven in the highest heaven cannot contain you, how much less this house that I have built. So there wasn't a confusion as though God were somehow limited there, but there was an emphasis that that was the place where God's people were to meet with him. And in a unique way, his presence was there and it abided there. So when the believing Old Testament saint thought of the temple, his thoughts were immediately of the place where God's presence was. That's where God's presence is. And that is what is being expressed here in Psalm 84. How lovely are your dwelling places. I yearn for the courts of the Lord. Why? Not because of just the beauty of that structure, but it was because that's where God was. That's where the worship that God prescribed took place. That's where he met him and observed him and experienced his presence in a unique way. And that's what he longed for. All of the objects and the ceremony of the temple and the functions of all those who served there marked the presence of God. And it was that glory of that worship that captured his heart. So much so, just as a note here, that he in verse three, if you look, 
considers the birds, he says, even that found a house there or a swallow or a nest for herself, that she may lay her young. Even your altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God. And there he's simply considering the blessedness even of a bird, a swallow, who gets to always be near the Lord. And so it is the heart then of true worship. It is the heart of true worship. This is a heart then in true worship, as I've mentioned before, I wanna say here that has tasted the sweetness and the savor, savor of God's glory, of his majesty and of his goodness. This is a, the fruit of regeneration. The Old Testament saying did not yet have the fullness of the spirit, spirit that we have. We'll mention that later. But they did have regeneration. They were born with a dead heart as much as anybody, whether the old or the new covenant. And the work of God's spirit in regenerating the heart was essentially the same in both the old and the new covenant. It was to awaken a heart that would have been dead and blind to the glory of God, to see that glory, to taste its sweetness and to love God, and to love God. That was the true nature of the covenant and the relationship. That was what was known only by a true Israelite, a true Israelite. And that is, and here's the point on this, the truest expression of worship is to delight in God. It is to delight in him. And it is to delight in him as he is in himself. Apart from, apart from all of the other externals, apart from all of even the benefits that God gives to his people, it is to see that there is the place that the sinner gets to meet with God and to gaze and consider his glory. So notice then here the God-centeredness of his worship. Look again. Verse one, how lovely are lovely are your dwelling places, O Lord of hosts. His soul longs for the courts of the Lord because that's where the Lord is. He sings the joy to who? To the living God. Your altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God. All these things are taking in place in your house. They are forever praising you, those who are there. He's not praising the temple structure. He's not praising the wonder of the building itself. He's not lost in all of the ceremony and thinking how wonderful that makes him feel. He is enraptured with what the end of all of those things are, which is God himself. It's God himself that has captured his heart. It's the beauty and the glory of God himself that has impressed him deeply in his soul. And God is not concerned nor even impressed with the external structures, even that he gave. I just want to give you one just, uh, example of this. Uh, it's striking in the, in the Gospels as Jesus was traveling around in Jerusalem with his disciples. Uh, it's repeated in the other synoptics, but in Mark 13, it says this, that as he, being Jesus, was going out of the temple, now this would not have been Solomon's temple, this would have been Herod's temple, uh, a version of what is known as the second temple, uh, a version of it. And so he says here, as they were going out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, teacher, behold, what wonderful stones and wonderful buildings. In other words, they were just enraptured by the beauty of the structure itself. And what did Jesus say to them? Do, not, do you see these great buildings? Not one stone will be left upon another which will not be torn down. In other words, I'm not impressed with that. That is not the thing that should capture your affection. That is not the thing that is truly beautiful and wonderful. That isn't what draws you there. All of that is meant for one end, to see and behold and to understand the glory of God to lead you to him. It's not the impressiveness of the priesthood, the externals of religion, but God himself that captures the true worship. It's not the practice of religion, but the beauty and majesty of God that has captured the affections of the true heart. This is the one who is blessed, as he says in verse four, and knows true happiness, true happiness. As 
One author said, the more we are with Christ, the happier we are. And that certainly would have been here true of this, this Old Testament saint, even more of ours, us. The happier, the nearer we are to Christ, the happier we are. And if you're a believer, the further you are, the less happy you are, the less blessed. Now, this is in direct contrast to those who were, who were rebuked both by the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 29 and Jesus in Matthew 15, in which he said this, they honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. They honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And again, this is what needs to be, we need to be reminded of repeatedly. It's so easy to get lost in the externals of religion and count that as the expression of our worship. It's so easy to get lost in the emotion of a song or the liturgy of a service and never actually worship God. Out of all the words we may sing, the prayers we may sing along with, the words of scripture we may read, it's possible to go and to be around all of that and never actually worship God. And it's not just the Old Testament saint. If you'll remember in the Sermon on the Mount, looking to a future day, Jesus warns of this in Matthew chapter seven, Lord, Lord, he'll say to many who gathered around him at this time and they're gonna be judged and they will say, Lord, Lord, did we not do these things in your name? Did we not essentially worship you? Did we not do all of these things supposedly for you? And he says, depart from me, I never knew you. So whatever you were doing or whatever they were doing, it was not true worship. It wasn't lack of doctrine. It wasn't lack of energy invested and time. It wasn't even lack of a certain kind of intellectual belief, but it was not the worship that engaged the heart in truth. It was not what Jesus calls for, what God calls for, and it's not what's being expressed here. True worship engages the heart at the level of sincerity. It's not the mere externals. So by contrast to that, those who worship God worship him first and find the fundamental delight of their hearts out of which springs all other delights, a sense of the greatness and the beauty of God as he is in himself. And just for a second here, I want to kind of pull over and just focus on that because this is an essential point. To begin our love for God only or to think of God as beautiful only because of what he gives and does for us is something less than true worship. It's something less than true worship. To begin the sense of our love for God only because of his benefits to us is to start at the wrong end. And I'll illustrate the way that this plays itself out. And this is shown by many, and it, it plays itself out particularly in this way. By many who express love to God for his benefits, who sing and get very engaged in the idea of his grace, an idea of his mercy for them, an idea of the benefits of his providence and of his nearness and all of those things, which are good things we should and we must. But while expressing that with their lips and expressing that with great ethos and emotion or whatever, when it comes to understanding that same God who judges sin, that same God, God who addresses sin with discipline, that same holy God who will bring his judgment on a world that rejects him. Well, or if his God acts contrary to what we think is good and what is best. For example, worship of God for all of his mercy and benefits, but God wouldn't actually judge sin or say that homosexuality is wrong if they really love each other. That's a mean God. I couldn't imagine a God like that. God wouldn't actually judge somebody eternally who rejects his son but lives a good moral life or religious life. I couldn't, I couldn't worship a God like that. Or how about this, as I've mentioned several times, uh, I can't worship a God who does all things for his own glory. That's a selfish, vain God that I couldn't worship. You see, so there can be a lot of expressions of God that really aren't love for God. They don't start. They start on the wrong foundation. 
God is viewed and loved primarily for what he does for us, what he gives to us, what he thinks of us, how he honors us, how he provides for us. And he's not first loved for him as he is in himself, as he is in himself. But true love for God loves God as he is in himself, loves him for his own perfections, for his own glory, for his own beauty, for the own, his own, the own loveliness of his holiness. And then secondarily, for the way he benefits us, for the way that he provides for us, for the ways that he shows us overwhelming grace and mercies in Christ. And this is the love of the psalmist and the love of all God's saints, the true love and faith that trust him in all of his ways, in all the mysterious ways of his providence, in all of the difficulties, in all of the hard truths. So the Old Testament saint came to the temple and the sacrifice, certainly aware of redemption, certainly fulfilled with gratitude as we do as Christians for the grace of God to deliver us from the bondage for their sakes the bondage of their to Egypt for us the bondage of our sin and certainly the Old Testament saints saw that as well like David expressed in Psalm 32 how blessed is the one whose sins are forgiven whose transgression is covered certainly we come overwhelmed as Paul said to express love to him who loved us and gave himself up for us. Yes, that is absolutely true. But at the base of the foundation of all of that is a heart that sees and loves God as he is in himself and is amazed that that glorious God has then extended to us these great benefits of redemption. And all of this then is centered and expressed here in this pure delight of this worshiping believer to simply be in the presence of God, in the house of God. And that is then the heart of true worship. That is the heart of true worship. We're going to come back to some of the implications of that in a bit, but let me move next to the second point. And this is the second expression of worship. The first is that the true expression of worship longs for God, his presence, his person, his glory alone, as he is in himself, desires to be with him, to be near him. The second is this expression of worship, that it finds strength in God's spiritual provisions. It finds strength in God's spiritual provisions. And this is verses five through eight. He says in verse five, how blessed is the man whose strength is in you, in whose heart are the highways To Zion there is implied, you may have it in italics uh, in your Bible, it picks up uh, on verse 7, those who appear to God in Zion. Here is the idea, most likely there's discussion on several points of this uh, in terms of what is the the context and the situation of it. I, I think the best way to understand it is that these are those who are going on their pilgrimages to Jerusalem to celebrate one of the three free feasts that were prescribed. For Israel, they are away from the temple and they're longing to be back near the temple and be back near near the place where God's presence was uniquely manifest. But what does he mean by this statement? In whose heart are the highways to Zion? The one who finds strength is this one in whose heart are the highways to Zion. It's simply to say this, that the heart and affections in the, in the believer, the true worshiper, are always directed back to God are always directed back to the glory of God. It means no matter where he is in the world, no matter what his circumstances, the the paths and the direction of his heart are always leading him back to God, to Zion, in this case, that place where God's beauty and his presence is so uniquely expressed. It's It's not completely unlike what Paul commanded the believers in reference to Christ, is set your mind on the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. It's like that. It's like that. Set, go, where's Christ? My mind is always going back to where Christ is, to where God is. It's always going back to him, to him, and a desire to him. And that's, 
That's the idea, even similar here to what the, the psalmist is expressing, in whose heart are always these highways back, these paths, these well-worn paths back to God. Back to him, his majesty, his power, his covenant faithfulness. That's picked up even in the descriptions that he gives. He is God in Zion. He is the God of hosts. He is the God of Jacob. This God who is their God, who is, in the language of the psalmist, my God, verse 3, my king and my God. That's where his heart is always headed back to. One author, and I just mentioned this because it's helpful, said that there is a picture here as well of the order that true faith brings to life. There is a, a kind of chaos in, in, the, in the life, in the inner life of an unbeliever. And, and chaos, sometimes just the kind of chaos that comes from sin that leaves them wrestling and being tossed here and there with all of the uncertainties and the difficulties and so forth of life. But there's also a kind of chaos that believers have. And, and this was the interesting point is that in an unbeliever's life, even if they have some measure of success and experience of just uh, the common grace of God and they get to the end of their life, what is the joy of their life? It's never looking forward. It's looking back. It's remembering all the things that did happen, all of the things that were accomplished. But that's quite different than the heart of the believer isn't looking back only except to see the good things that God has done, but as always in terms of our joy and our greatest blessing, looking forward to what is to come, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what is ahead, which is to lay hold of all that God has for us in Christ. It is to lay hold of Christ himself. And that is here, the one who truly knows him, the hearts are always looking forward, moving forward to dwell and meditate on God and his glory and all that is promised to his people. And he says he goes from strength to strength here, which is simply to say that the one who knows God in this way, who has this heart, has an, an inner strength to complete life's journey. In this case, the journey to Jerusalem. But the idea is to journey wherever, we're always journeying with God, even amid the difficulties. Where do we get that? Look at the way he describes it in verse six. Passing through the valleys of Pekah, they make it a spring. The early rain also covers it. He says again in verse seven, they go from strength to strength and every one of them appears before God in Zion. Now, there's some question here about the valley of Pekah. So I'm gonna associate it with the idea of the valley of weeping. Uh, the idea is most likely, there's a, there's a word for weeping that uh, is similar here. But whatever it is, the idea I would say most, most likely is because referring, it's translated in this term and somewhere else as a balsam tree. They grow in uh, desert and arid places. And, and that's, that's the idea of passing through these arid and dry places, these difficult places that the one who has faith in God finds that he makes their way prosperous, sustaining them with his blessing, sustaining him with these refreshments of heart and spirit. It may even picture the idea of how it would rain sometimes in these valleys and create pools and, and, and cause the green to come out, what was brown and caused to be green. We're from California, Southern California, and you see that often, the brown, after it rains, those brown hills and fields become green, and it's very interesting to see. It could be that idea. But the, the spiritual point that he's making here, the, the, the thing that he's emphasizing in this expression of worship is that the difficulties that they may face along the way are met more than abundantly by the provision of God's spiritual blessing of the strength which he provides, which he provides. It's a beautiful, beautiful picture here. And it's a beautiful and reminder of God's provision for his people always, who are, in this case, this one was traveling to the, the place where he could uniquely worship God, but it's a reminder that even though he's going through these difficulties, even though it may come with adversity 
And even though the place he's traveling is where God's presence uniquely is, that's not the only place that it is. God is also with him on the journey. God is with him on the way. God has not abandoned him. He has not left him. So the idea is that even in, even in times of struggle or trial, the one whose heart is set to, to God, the one who trusts in him, will know the refreshment of hope that his presence brings and find the strength to carry on. One put it in a beautiful poem like this. The storm may roar with, without me. My heart may low be laid. My God is round about me. And can I be dismayed? Green pastures are before me, which yet I have not seen. Bright skies will soon be o'er me where the dark clouds have been. My hope I cannot measure. My path to life is free. My Savior has mysterious treasure, and he will walk with me. And that is, captures the promise that God has given his people throughout. He told Joshua to go in the land. I will be with you. We're reminded in Hebrews 13, that no matter what, Christ has promised, I will never leave you and I will never forsake you. And that is what is being expressed here in the heart of worship, who's always directed to God, lays hold of those promises and knows the strength that walking with him brings. You know, it also demonstrates something else, actually. And this was a point I would, uh, I borrowed from Calvin, right? He brought this out very helpfully very applicable, very practical. And it is in this way, that this also pictures the tenacity of the one whose heart truly wants to worship God. And this is the helpful observation, is that this stands, I'm summarizing what he said, but this stands in striking contrast to those who find so little a prospect of joy in meeting with God and his people that the smallest inconvenience becomes a reason reason to neglect any sacrifice to do so. Now to quote Calvin, he says this, those who have true heart religion and who sincerely serve God direct their steps to the sanctuary of God, not only when the way is easy and cheerful under the shade and through delightful paths, but also when they must walk through rugged and barren deserts. In other words, this is the heart of one who wants to be in the place where God is worshipped, where God is there, where praise is being offered to him. That's the heart of the one here. And so if we even as measure our own spiritual condition and to say, how easily is it for us to neglect the gathered worship of God's people? How easy is it for us to find any excuse not to go and to be with God's people? I have something to do. I'm tired, whatever. I don't feel like it this morning. That's not the heart that is expressed here. That's not the heart of a saint. The heart of the one who truly knows God says, I, I need to be there. That's important for me to be there. That's where I'm going to meet with God and be with his people. It's not a chore. It's not a difficulty. It's not a burden to my day. It's not an inconvenience to the other things that I want to do. It's the place where I have to be. It's the place where my heart directs me to because of the sincerity of my love for God and my love to be where he is worshipped and to be with his people. And there's a sense where this is even greater, greater for us as new covenant believers. You know, certainly they understood, even in the old covenant, this communal aspect, this communal aspect of worship. Even though the psalmist is here expressing his personal delight, and even though we have that personally as individuals who walk with God, it's, it's not like we're all saved to our own individual religion. We are saved in the new covenant as a body. They were saved as a nation, and we are saved as a body of believers who have the spirit. Here's the way that it is expressed in the old covenant, Psalm 133. Behold, how good and how pleasant it is for brothers to dwell together in unity. It is like the precious oil upon the head coming down upon the beard, even Aaron's beard coming down upon the edge of his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon coming down from the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord commanded the blessing, the life forever. We might express it in this way. In Hebrews chapter 10, it says this, let us, 
Let us hold fast the confession of our hope, our hope together, not simply my hope. I experience it and have to express it, but our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our assembling, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. We come together in an even more glorious sense of our union in Christ as new covenant believers, as new covenant believers. Jesus had anticipated this when he spoke to the woman at the well, just to show you the advance of this. They said, where do we worship? Do we Mount Gerizim or do we worship in Jerusalem? And Jesus said, do you remember well that I tell you in none of these places where you worship for the father seeks the true worshipers, those who will worship in spirit and truth. What did he mean by that? Well, he would give another hint when he had some conflict in the temple in one of the two times in John chapter two, where he goes in and he clears it out. He tells them, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. And they mocked him because they thought he was talking about Herod's temple. Of course, he could have done that, but that's not what he was talking about. John specifically tells us he was speaking of the temple of his body. In other words, the presence of God, the appearance of Christ had now moved way forward. So even that presence of God uniquely manifest in the Old Testament temple, which just as a footnote here, had left in Ezekiel 8 through 10 before his destruction, never to return again. But even more still now, it's no longer in the temple. Jesus is saying the presence of God far more than the temple is present in me. He who is the son of God incarnate, the word made flesh. He of whom he would say in just the next chapter has the spirit without measure. And then it gets even greater because this Jesus in whom the presence of God is uniquely and ultimately climactically and fully experienced after his work as the Messiah and his death, atoning death and resurrection was exalted to the right hand of the Father and sent the Spirit to dwell where? Where? In a temple? In a building? No, in his people. In his people. That's why the temple is gone. We don't have that. It's not in that location anymore. There is a unique sense in which this indwelling ministry of the Spirit is within the people of God individually, but gloriously, collectively. You'll remember these verses in 1 Corinthians 6. Let me just give you a few examples. You are, your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God. 2 Corinthians 3. Oh, excuse me. In 6, he says this. God does, I will dwell among them, in them, and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. He is among them. He is in them. He is among us. Listen, just one more in Ephesians. Saying that there's no Jew, Gentile, those things that separated the law and the commandments and those no longer, he says, now in Christ and those who have his spirit, those who are united to him by, or to Christ by the spirit, he says, that we are the whole building being fitted together and growing into a temple, holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also being built together into a dwelling of God in the spirit. And so there is an even more wonderful and an even more glorious way when God's people gather together, that we are now the dwelling place ourselves of what was before pictured in the temple of God. We now bear in ourselves in some glorious and mysterious way the presence of God. We should desire to be together, to express this worship communally, together as the redeemed, sharing in the same spirit, the same salvation, the same loves, the same hopes, the same joys, the same desires and affections to offer that up to God in true worship. And that's how we encourage one another. And even particularly in the context of Hebrews, we encourage one another to hold on. We encourage one another to persevere. Why? Because of what God has done, who he is and what he has done for us in Christ. Now, lastly, and I'll make this point very briefly. In verses 9 through 10, we see third. Third expression of worship is it's satisfied with God's provision. 
The first is, is that it truly longs for God. The second is satisfied in God's spiritual provisions. And third is it's satisfied expression is satisfied with God's providence. Look at 9 through 12. He says in verse 8, he concluded that last section with realizing the nearness of God in prayer, the access to God in prayer. And now he says in verse 9, Behold our shield, O God, and look upon the face of your anointed. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand outside. I would rather stand at the threshold of the house of my God than dwell in tents of wickedness. For the Lord God is a sun and a shield. The Lord gives grace and glory and no good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly or with integrity. O Lord of hosts, how blessed is the man who trusts in you. That's interesting that he says there in verse nine, and look upon the face of your anointed. He immediately turns to God's favor to the king. Why is that? That's interesting because the king stood as the head of the nation. And through his faithfulness or unfaithfulness, God's blessings were poured out or withheld upon the nation. And so even the, the, the glory and the joy of this and the blessings of God that are experienced here in the temple are, in a way, a real way, connected also to the ministry of the king. He's blessed him. Why? Because as he's blessed, we're blessed, and we continue this worship, and we are protected and able to come and offer ourselves and in worship to you. That's, that's the idea. God is a shield and a protection. But look what he says in verse 10. He returns back to this longing. He returns back to his longing. And he says, because that's where I'd rather be essentially than any other place, any other place. Make, make and preserve this way and make it possible. And let me just note, note here that there is an anticipation here of the one who would be our ultimate king, which is the Lord Jesus Christ, who fulfilled in every way God's purposes for the true king, Fulfilled in every way the true meaning of the sacrifice. Christ is our king. He is the anointed one. That's what Christ means, anointed. He is the one who has purchased for us every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. He is the king who has provided for us always that access to God and who will fulfill that ultimate promise that God has given to us to be with him. But here he says in verse 10 again, that that is the blessing that he wants above all else is to be near him. Day in your courts is better than a thousand outside. I'd rather stand at the threshold of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. All the united pleasures of the wicked who chase happiness and the satisfaction and carnal or sensual desires, all of them mounted up and brought together can not even come close to the true and sincere joy of the one who knows God truly and in this way. And fellowships with him. The unbeliever goes from one pleasure to the next, from one thing to the next, always seeking happiness in all of its form. And there maybe is some measure of happiness that's experienced along the way, a certain kind of contentment even that some can have in this world. But none of them, none of them, even under the best conditions of common grace, can stand close in delight and beauty and desire as the one who has truly been awakened to God. If you know God, that makes no sense to an unregenerate heart. It doesn't, why? Because there is no contrast in the unregenerate hearts, right? They, they've never experienced that joy. They've never tasted of the glory of God. And so it's inconceivable to them. It's insane and lunacy then that somebody, this statement could be made truly. But in fact, for those who know God, it is the truth. We would gladly give up all of the world merely to have God. And there is no joy that this world can bring that comes close to what's experienced in nearness to God. And at the end of it all, just to wrap this up, obviously so much more to say. It's not merely just uh, the, the true experience of this worship, but just to note here in verse 11, is of those, he says, who walk uprightly. So this, this whole heart devotion, is, this is only experienced by the one who walks with him by faith. It's not merely by being a Christian, it begins there. That is the base of it, but it is known and experienced in its fullness as we trust him and as we walk with him. And in the end, he sums it up. O Lord of hosts, how blessed is the man who trusts in you. 
who trust in you. He is blessed. He has no good thing withheld from him. And again, this good thing isn't merely external blessings. We are reminded here of what Paul's words are. We capture the idea of God causes all things to work together for good to those who love him, who are called according to his purpose. God withholds no good thing. He may withhold from us certain wants. He may grant them, but those are immaterial. God holds no good thing that we need and is for our blessing and for his service in this life from us when we walk with him. And the one who knows the blessedness of that truth is the one, he says at verse 12, who trusts him, who trusts in you. And that it really is at the end of the day, the greatest expression of worship is who trust him, who trust him enough to keep his commandments who trust him enough to walk with him confidently, even in all of the uncertainties and the up and downs of life, who trust in him. Why is it the greatest expression of worship? Because it acknowledges him for all that he is, our glorious creator, our glorious redeemer, the sovereign one, the holy one, the wise one. He who is infinite in all of his perfections is worthy of our trust in him. And when we are able to grasp that and do it, then we truly worship and we truly know the blessedness of, of worship and what's being expressed here. And of course, the greatest longing of our heart, and in this case, we are with the psalmist, because even we who have the full blessings of the new covenant don't have them in full. And it's very interesting. We won't turn there for time's sake, but that is the very imagery, the temple and the tabernacle of what God pictures in the new heaven and the new earth. He will come and he'll be a sanctuary among them. And we have this tabernacle idea of the presence of God. And we long for that. And we wait for that as believers. That is our hope. That is our joy. And that is what we look forward to. So I pray that as you evaluate, you're encouraged in terms of the worship and the delights and the privileges we have in God. And that as you evaluate your own worship too, that this might lead us to a more pure and strengthen us in a more sincere trust and walk with our God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you have supplied us with the means to do this. We don't have within ourselves, our sinful fallen flesh, the ability to see you. It is because you awaken us by grace through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. As Paul said to the Corinthians, to see your glory in the face of Jesus Christ. And then even as believers, we don't walk in our own strength because we fail when we walk in our own strength. But in you, we can fulfill and know the full blessings of the covenant that we have granted to us in Christ, this covenant relationship that involves the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, the forgiveness of our sins, this nearness to you, which can only have been dreamed of by the Old Testament saint, and yet even we ourselves long for something greater, and that is the fullest expression of it in the new heavens and the new earth. Keep our minds and our hearts steadfast to it, that we might be faithful, and that we might be marked as those in whose hearts are the highways to Zion, and who are blessed because we trust in you. And Lord, for any who do not know that blessing yet, I pray that they would be awakened to the, what they don't have and seek it from you in Christ. And it's in his most majestic and holy name we pray. Amen. All right. May the Lord bless you. And God willing, we will see you uh, next week. Uh, same time, same place. But be praying that this can end soon and that we can uh, soon meet together again. All right. May the Lord bless you. Bye.